This message by Chad Porter, entitled, Who Do You Think You Are?, was recorded at Wellspring Church on August 11, 2019. The text for this message is Jude 1 and 2. This morning's scripture reading comes from the book of Jude. We'll be reading verses 1 and 2 together. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. So far, the reading of God's words may be seated. We are uh, beginning a short four-week sermon series this morning on a book of the Bible that you may not know existed. <laughs> Uh, the book of Jude is a one-chapter book of the Bible that comes right before Revelation. So if you have your Bibles this morning, I would encourage you to turn there, go to the back at Revelation, and then just go back one book. It is one chapter, 25 verses, and we'll be spending the next four weeks uh, looking at this book, which is short but in no way insignificant. So let me pray for us this morning. Father, we do count it a privilege to be gathered together freely as your called, beloved, and protected people to worship you this morning and to be able to study your word without fear of state or physical repercussions in many ways that our brothers and sisters around the world have to deal with. We count it as a great blessing. And so we do ask that you would speak to us through your word by your spirit this morning, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear what it is that you are speaking to us. May we see your glory. May you grant to us the humility of heart and spirit without which no one will be able to understand your word. So we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Around uh, especially the holidays, uh, meaning like Thanksgiving and Christmas, we, I, we find ourselves watching very cheesy romantic comedies, like uh, in, in much greater volume than we do throughout the rest of the year. And uh, uh, some of them I secretly enjoy, even though I make fun of the movie the whole time. It's still entertaining to me. Um, but I'm talking like Hallmark Channel ones, ones that are never even like sniff a movie theater, you know. And uh, somebody made a, a comment one time, which I think was totally accurate. They were talking about kind of romantic comedies in general. Um, but I think it especially applies to these kind of like... Uh, uh, Oxygen Network uh, movies or whatever. Uh, is that even a channel anymore? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't had cable in a while. Um, and that is, like, there's a typical formula for these things as there is in uh, many movies. And that is, whoever the lead character is, be it male or female, more often than not, it's either like they're from a small town and they go to the big city and they discover who they are, or they're living in a big city and return to their small town and remember who they were. It's like it either goes from like small town to big city or big city to small town. And there's always this like self-realization or actualization, either like learning who you are, discovering yourself in the big city 
or remembering who you were and who you have strayed from in the small city. And I think that that's, that's accurate, I would say, uh, at least in many of the, of my education in, in, in uh, recent years. And I, I say this this morning, I bring it up because I think like the, the, the topic of kind of identity, of self-identity and who you are is baked into kind of that formula of movie, our movie going experience. And it's not just rom-coms. It's, it gets, uh, you know, all different types of movies, but like, who am I is such a pertinent question. And especially in our day and age, right? I mean, there's never been a more public time where you're out there with all the different types of social media. Like you are constantly, and I am constantly making decisions on how I want to present myself for public consumption every day. I mean, just remember and think about, not that any of you have dealt with this, but the thinking that went behind your about me section on Facebook or your bio on Instagram or like, or the things that you post, like, what do you say about yourself or your LinkedIn profile that you're crafting to hope to get noticed by this job or your resume, right? Like, you're thinking about how carefully constructing who am I and who do I present? How do I present myself favorably to those around me? And so the question of kind of identity is part and parcel of our culture, really. And it's these issues that Jude speaks to in many ways in just these first two verses of the book this morning, verses that we probably read over very quickly, if you're anything like me, just to get to the meat of what's actually going on. But we're going to stop and we're going to pause and we're going to consider just these two verses this morning because there's some important things for us to think about and to realize Jude is teaching us, God is teaching us, even in this opening introductory formula, we mean things that we may not expect. And specifically this morning, we're going to see that God defines who we are. God defines who we are. And because of this, it's because of this and from this posture that we can and must love and serve others freely. In other words, in an environment, in a place, in a culture, and where we're constantly trying to make ourselves into what we think others want us to be, we're constantly trying to self-actualize. We're constantly trying to get a better job. We're trying to constantly trying to get better friends, become more popular. The tyranny of that is actually overthrown when we see that God is the one who defines who we are. And therefore, it moves us and frees us to love and serve others. And it's these things that we'll think about and talk about this morning as we look at the first two verses of this little book of Jude. And to help us do that, we're going to focus our thinking on three main points. And it's really going to be an answer to three questions that Jude either explicitly or implicitly answers this morning. And the first is, who is Jesus? The second, who is Jude? And the third, who are we? Who is Jesus? Who is Jude? And who are we? And so we begin with the first question that Jude addresses, and that is, who is Jesus? As I just said, first lines are significant. You know, call me Ishmael. Remember the 
most famous first line of a book. It's from Moby Dick, right? I think. <laughs> Either that or I just embarrass myself for all the recordings to, uh, to uh, everybody listens to the recording to hear. But it, first lines are significant. And maybe we not think uh, they are as significant in a letter, in an epistle like this one. We write emails maybe. You know, dear so-and-so, I hope this finds you well. You know, I hope you're doing well. I hope that, you know, all these different things that kind of we say it maybe because it feels right or whatever. But uh, first lines are actually significant even in letters. They set the tone for what's going on. They introduce the author. They introduce the audience. They set kind of the expectations and frame what's going to come throughout. They oftentimes introduce themes that are going to be important, which uh, the writer is going to write about. And so we need to pause and linger here for just a moment this week over these first two verses. Look at verse 1 again with me. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Something significant about that. A couple things significant about that that we may not see at first blush. First, that word servant. There is a word for servant in Greek that is diakonos, and that is not what this word is. It is doulos, which is slave. Um, throughout the New Testament, often when you see servant, you'll see like a little uh, footnote here, and it'll go down and it'll say something. Uh, well, it could be slave could be servant. It's a complicated word, especially in our culture with the history of slavery in the West um, for us to have. But, but truly, it, it means slave. Um, the first thing that Jude does is present himself as a slave of Christ Jesus, a servant of Christ Jesus. And we'll talk a little more about that in the second point. But he's not just introducing himself as the servant or the slave of Christ Jesus. Jude's actually picking up on an Old Testament formula that was really common, especially to people steeped in the Old Testament in ways we could only hope to be, like the people that Jude, were writing, Jude was writing to here. So there's a common formula that you see throughout the Old Testament that in referencing uh, the servants of God, his representatives to people, but he modifies it a little bit. He modifies it a little bit, and it's important the way that he modifies it. And this formula, this phrase can be seen throughout the Old Testament, but a, but a couple, just two instances here are seen in the life of Moses or in reference to him. For example, Deuteronomy 34, 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. Or in 2 Kings chapter 18, it says, The king of Assyria carried the Israelites away to Assyria and put them in Halah and on Habor the river of Gozon and the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord, their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They neither listened nor obeyed. The servant of the Lord is a way that commonly kind of characterized the Lord's representatives in the Old Testament. And it's not just servant of the Lord or of God or any generic name for God or a more common name for God like Elohim. This was the servant of Yahweh. Maybe you remember that word. When you see it in the New Testament or the Old Testament, when you see Lord written in all caps, it means it's translating Yahweh, the divine name, the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush when he's called to go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, he says, who shall I say sent me? And the Lord says, say that Yahweh sent you. I am. And the Jews held 
supreme honor and respect for this name to the extent that they wouldn't even write it, much less speak it. And so that's why you'll see LORD in all caps as kind of trans- signifying that that's the word in Hebrew that it's used, that it's translating there. And so in this formula, in designating servants of God, this servant of the Lord is really servant of Yahweh, servant of Yahweh, servant of Yahweh. This is a common way to describe to God's servants in the past in the Old Testament. And so we shouldn't move past it too quickly that the way that Jude signifies himself here and the way that Paul and other New Testament writers so often do is they use the same formula. They say servant of, but instead of Yahweh, they say servant of Jesus. Servant of Christ Jesus, or servant of Jesus Christ. And that's significant for the fact that, did you see what happens there and what they did in ways that like totally fly over our heads and we don't even realize? Is they substitute the name of Jesus for the name of Yahweh. Which is a big deal. It's a big deal to these people. They are no longer counting themselves, I am a servant of Yahweh. That is not how they are presenting themselves before the churches as they're trying to establish who they are, as they're trying to say why you should listen to me. It's, I'm a, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a servant of God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is put into the place of Yahweh in this formula here. And the point that I want us to pick up here in our first uh, point about who is Jesus, is Jude implies here, by the very formula that he begins the book with, a radical orientation around the exalted Christ. A radical centering around who Jesus is, which is confirmed, and we look at who Jude is and who we are. He sets out at the beginning of this book radically orienting, centering, coming everything around the exalted Christ Jesus at the outset. And so who is Jesus? Jude says he is the exalted Lord. He is equal with Yahweh. From a staunch and strict monotheistic background, that is why the Jews had such problems with Jesus' presenting himself, with Jesus as equal with God. For example, when the, when the Pharisees are challenging him in John 8, and he says, Jesus says, truly Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. And the Pharisees go, what are you talking? You're not even like 40 years old and you're going to say that Abraham knows you? And then what did Jesus say? Before Abraham was, I am. And then what did they do? They picked up stones to kill him. When he receives worship and he doesn't, tell people to stop in the myriad of ways that the Bible proclaims that Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Word who was in the beginning with God, this Word who was God. Jude here begins his book in a clear and certain orientation about around the exalted Lord Jesus Christ. We cannot mess around with him. We cannot play with him. They used to be hats that was Jesus is my homeboy when I was in college that people would actually wear and buy. I don't know why you would wear clothing 
and says, Jesus is my homeboy. Maybe some of you have that. I apologize if I'm offending you. But um, we need to stop and recognize here the supreme importance of the person that we're dealing with and the person by whose name we are called. And so that is the first point that we need to recognize from the beginning of this book. Who is Jesus? Jesus is God. Second, who is Jude? Who is Jude? In looking at the way that Jude describes himself a little bit more fully, we see in our first point, really, we see it confirmed of everything we just talked about. And that is Jude centers his self-conception entirely around Jesus, such that his credibility and his standing before these people that he's writing to, and that he's saying bold and somewhat controversial things to, he centers his self-conception around Jesus in both his credibility and his standing. First, his credibility. He declares himself the servant of Jesus Christ first off. The servant of Jesus Christ, and that we can think of that as a term of humility, and it is. He is not coming declaring how great he thinks everything is. He is coming as a servant of another, as a servant of Christ Jesus. But that's not the only thing that that means. It is a statement of humility, but it's also a statement of authority. It's a statement of authority as Christ's representative. You think of the way that the Apostle Paul begins his many of his letters. The Apostle or Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in so-and-so. These men write these letters to the church. These people come to the church not because they have man-attained wisdom, not because they present or they, they carry in and of themselves special intrinsic worth, but they come with credibility that rests not upon themselves. It's the same reason I'm standing up here today. I do not speak anything right now from my own wisdom. Whoever speaks from the pulpit does not say anything because we are smart or because we know better than anyone else. A preacher is meant to declare God's word with authority only insofar as they accurately convey what God is actually saying in his word. And so Jude, from the very beginning, stakes his credibility, his standing, his authority, which is a real thing as he writes to these churches, but it's profoundly wrapped up in who Jesus is. He comes as a delegate, as a representative of the risen Lord, the exalted king, and he said all that in what, like five words (laughs) uh, this morning. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ. So Jude's credibility centers around who Christ is, but his standing also centers around who Christ is. And we see that one way when in the second statement that he uses to describe himself. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. He's also the brother of James. Now, who's James? Well, we see that there was a certain James who rose to prominence in the early church. Like when Paul is describing his own journey in the book of Galatians, and he says, I declared the gospel that I had been given to preach before Peter and James and John, who seemed to be pillars. Peter and James and John, these three important and significant leaders in the early church. Or maybe you remember 
a book that we preached through not too long ago, the book of James. The same guy. Jude is James's brother. But do you know who else is James's brother? If you remember from that series, it was Jesus. James was the brother of Jesus. And Jude is the brother of Jesus. But it's interesting that he does not, neither he nor James, who are New Testament writers, make much of this. They don't even mention that they are brothers of the Lord for probably a number of different reasons. But I don't know if you know anyone who's like a name dropper, who just subtly in conversations, they they will say things that it, it's like it feels like the reason that you said that was to show how important you are. Like a meeting that you were in, a person that you met. And, and it's often like super subtle, but, or maybe you are a name dropper. <laughs> Listen to your spouse or your friends on that one. Um, I remember I, uh, I listened to podcasts often in my car when I'm driving places or when I'm just, uh, killing time, uh, to kind of decompress and stuff. And I used to listen to a sports one and one of the, uh, one of the hosts of this show was like a, a short podcast, 30 minutes or whatever. But, uh, he always had this tendency of like oddly communicating how well connected he was to like famous athletes and stuff like that. And he would do it in ways that were just really kind of random and stuck out. And there was another like rotating co-host who, whenever that rotating co-host came on, he would always call the other guy out on it. And it was hilarious. Like he would be saying something like, Oh, you know, yeah, that guy was in a lot of pressure there and stuff like that. I remember I was playing cards once with like Tiger Woods and, and Michael Jordan and it was a lot of pressure. And then he would go on and talk. And the guy was super knowledgeable about sports. And he was very well connected throughout the sports world. But you totally knew how well connected he was. And you knew whenever anybody asked his advice on certain things or whatever. Um, and this is about, like, sports people. And, and what are you, you know, who are you tempted to name drop, right? You say when you met somebody famous or when you knew somebody and they got famous or uh, but chances are, like, the people you're talking to may not even know who you're talking about. Like, uh, the, you could tell me about that you knew the Bachelorette before she was the Bachelorette, and I would probably have no idea who you were talking about. You know, there's certain circles in which your name dropping does not work. Um, imagine you're Jude here for a minute, and you're writing to the people of God who worship Jesus, and you were his brother. I mean, that's like the ultimate name drop, right? There's... There's no beating that one, but Jude does not do it. He doesn't take the opportunity to do the ultimate name drop. He does mention Jesus, but he couches it only in the fact that he is his servant and that he is the brother of James. And the point that I'm trying to make and the point that we need to see here is that Jude is just reinforces that he is self-consciously Christ-centered about how he thinks about himself. Because you remember the New Testament statements about Jesus and his brothers, right? I mean, where was Jesus rejected? In his hometown. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. His brothers were not welcoming, receptive that this guy that they grew up with, that they saw in his most embarrassing moments. I mean, imagine your own sibling. Like, if there's anybody in the world that you probably know isn't that special or amazing... It's either your spouse or your siblings, right? And so you know that they're not great and awesome. And so Jesus' brothers, all of a sudden it's like, 
Jesus is the leader of this religious movement. I mean, I'm sure they saw things, but you can imagine the dissonance there. I mean, it, it, for all the evidence that we have, Jesus' brothers, even James and Jude, who were significant figures in the early church, did not come to embrace him as Lord and come to see him with new eyes until after his resurrection. Nevertheless, Jude, the brother of the Lord, considers himself first and foremost a servant of Christ Jesus, secondarily a member, a brother of James, radically Christ and self-consciously Christ-centered and oriented in how he thinks about himself. And so before we move on, the question that we need to ask ourselves and consider for the remainder of this morning is, how is your self-conception? Like, how do you conceive of yourself? If I ask you the question of who do you think you are, if you're filling out the about me portion on Twitter or Instagram or something, like when you're trying to, to say and to show and describe who you are, who do you think of yourself as? What do you think is most important about you? How Christ-centered is our self conception. Thirdly, who are we? We talked about who is Jesus, who is Jude, and finally, who are we? Who does Jude say that we are as members of the body of Christ, the body of Christ that he writes to here? Maybe not the specific particular one, but a member of the same global body. Who are we? Let's look at our two verses again this morning. Jude, servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept in Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. One of the most important things about Bible study, here's a free tip, to read slow and ask questions. The best biblical scholars and insights, they don't have, it's not simply because of biblical training. It's not simply because they have some like magical way of thinking about the world, although biblical training is supremely important. But they read slow and they ask questions. Read slow and ask questions. And so why does Jude talk about the people of God the way that he talks about the people of God? It's not insignificant. These are not throwaway lines. We believe that the entire Bible is inspired by God. He doesn't waste words like you or I do. I wrote an email this week. I hadn't talked to somebody in a while. And I said, I hope uh, hope you're doing well. You know, I, without even thinking about it, I'm like, man, I do that all the time. Because it, like it feels... Like, it's what you're supposed to do. And now everybody who I've written an email to that I'm like, I hope you're doing well. You're going to be like, oh, he doesn't care about me. He just says it. You know? <laughs> but uh, the Bible does not throw away words. There's not wasted lines. Why does Jude pick and describe and call his audience these things? There's three things that he describes the people of God as. Really, God as. really it's one thing with kind of two modifiers. Called. What does it mean to be called, to be beloved and kept? First, called. This is a common way 
to refer to God's people throughout the Old and New Testament. What made Israel special in the Old Testament? It was not that they were more obedient. It was not that they found their way to God. I mean, from the very beginning, Abraham in Ur of the Chaldeans, what was Abraham doing? He was worshiping the moon god. He was an idol worshiper. And what does God do? He calls Abraham. And he says, Abraham, go. Go to the land that I show you that I may bless you. Why is Israel significant? Because the Lord God called them. I set my love upon you, not because you were great in the eyes of the earth, not because you were more numerous than any other people, but I called you because I loved you. I set my love upon you because I love you. God's people have always been marked by being called by Him without any other prior reason that we should have been called by Him. Think of Second Peter 1. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Or Revelation 17. I saw, I saw a post this week that I think is, is absolutely true. Um, it was a, it was a, just an offhanded comment from a biblical scholar. And, um, whatever your view of Revelation and the end times, I think this is accurate for what he's describing. He said, the point of Revelation is not simply so that we could try, it's not meant to make us just go to try to like find a relationship between something that's going on today in 2019 and something that was written there. Like that's not the main point of Revelation. Revelation was written to people in concentration camps. It was written to people who are suffering and dying because they are Christian. And it was showing that there will be an end. The king will come and he will conquer. That's the point of Revelation. I don't mean that. I really don't mean that to denigrate or like to put down any type of anybody's views on Revelation, how you interpret it. But the, so think about that. That's why Revelation was written from when I read from Revelation 17 now. They will make war on the Lamb and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. It is far from an insignificant thing that you and I are the called of God. To be called by Him means to be one of those people for whom He battles in the end times. To be one of those people for whom the King comes and executes justice. For whom the King says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden and are weary, and I will give you rest. To be one of those people to whom the king says, you are in the world and you will and do have many trials and tribulations, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. To be called by God is anything but a trite or a throwaway word. And that is the first way that he describes the church that he's writing to. A church that we will learn that is in a precarious situation. 
And that is dealing with very difficult things, with false teachers invading their midst. Jude references the people as the called. And then he expounds on a little bit more about what that means with the next two descriptors that he uses here. They are called. That is, they are beloved in God the Father. Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. First, beloved in God. Think of Ephesians 2. and What it means to be loved by God. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us together made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Like Abram in Ur, worshiping who knows how many gods, we were not good candidates for God's program. We were, like everyone else, hostile, opposed to God, even if we didn't feel like it. Even if we didn't feel like we were self-consciously spitting in his face, we were refusing to recognize who the creator of the universe was, who we owe every breath to. We were hostile and alienated from God, separated from the gospel. But God, because of who is great in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, saved us, made us alive together with Christ. We can minimize the love of God really unintentionally, which is odd because the love of God is a very like common topic today, especially in our culture where the idea of tolerance has turned from, I would say, being able to disagree and welcome in conversation competing arguments without coming to a, you must believe what I believe or I'm going to hurt you, and that has moved to a much more might makes right. Tolerance means something very intolerant if you have a disagreeing opinion or an opinion that that contradicts what the person you are thinking or you are talking with believes. Um, We tend to, I think, rightly want to emphasize God's love, but in so doing, some of us can like, we can minimize what it is. We, we stop to think about how amazing that actually is. I mean, think and stop. This kind of hit me afresh when I was looking at it. Like, you are one sitting in this chair. You, man, woman, child, are one of roughly like a hundred billion people to have existed on this earth. Like, think of the number a hundred billion. Let that sink in. I, I think on earth right now, there's something like seven to eight billion people. You are one of roughly a hundred billion people to have existed in the history of earth. Earth being one of about a hundred billion planets in the Milky Way galaxy. 
a galaxy that is one of about a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. I mean, just think about this even for a nanosecond. The sheer size and scale of what we're talking about. And if the Bible is true in what it says, the Lord spoke the universe into existence. Imagine having a mind that could comprehend that big of a number. Over thousands of years, it's beyond what we could ever imagine. And yet this God, who is not mentally taxed in the least to hold all of these things, to speak them into existence and to hold them in existence by the word of his power every second of every day since the beginning of time. This God looks to you sitting in a chair in a random church in 2019, however you got here, in the Bay Area. You who, like me, can tend to think that I am super significant in this world. It really matters who I am because I am going to change. The, you know, like, I become so self-centered in the way I view. That God looked at you and called you. Why? Because he loves you. Because he loves you. Because he looks on you with favor when you deserve punishment. He looks on you with delight when you deserve wrath. To be beloved in God the Father, to be loved by Him is a staggering reality when we stop to think about it. And we've plumbed only the just very surface of the depths of that amazing statement. Who are you? Who am I? You are called. You are beloved in God the Father. And you are kept for Jesus Christ. You are guarded for Jesus Christ. Sam mentioned this a few weeks ago. Um, many of you are familiar with Joshua Harris, the former pastor of Covenant Life Church in Maryland, the flagship of Sovereign Grace Ministries, formerly pastored by C.J. Mahaney. Some of you, like me, may have come into contact with Josh Harris uh, when you were teenagers reading I Kiss Dating Goodbye. I read that when I was in high school. Um, Problems with the book now. <laughs> he has problems with the book now. Um, nevertheless, really went through a renaissance and became a very gospel-centered preacher, pastoring a very large church for a number of years. People who sat under his ministry for over a decade had him hold out the scriptures to them and point them towards the Jesus that we talk about, posted on Instagram a couple of weeks ago. Um, first, that he was separating from his wife. And then secondly, that he is no longer a Christian. He said something to the effect of by any metric or any measure that I have or know of to measure who is and is not a Christian, I am no longer a Christian. There's two ways that this kind of hits me. As I see, I'm someone who's removed. I've never met this guy. 
you know. It's not that he was some major influence in my life. He was another pastor, another pastor in an orbit that I would consider myself loosely a part of, and that is Christ-centered gospel preaching in America. It first makes me think and pray for him as I just read an article by some of his friends in ministry that they are praying that this would prove to be a wandering for him. And they are pleading that he would return to the Jesus that he held out to so many. It makes me pray that in the end this would turn out to be a testimony to God's grace and how he relentlessly pursues his children. The second thing that it does to me as it makes me think and reflect on my own life, as it makes me pray that God would keep me faithful. I don't know if you've ever had a leader fall away from the faith. I don't know if you've ever had someone who's a pillar in your life abandon the God that they told you to worship. But as I see this happen across the landscape, it makes me plead that God would keep me faithful. He would ple- makes me plead that he would hold me to the end. Come thou fount of every blessing. Says, here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. That's so why it's significant that Jude says here, who is the church that he's writing to? Who are we that he's writing to? We are the called. We are beloved in God, and we are kept by God the Father for Christ Jesus. We are kept and guarded by the Father for Christ Jesus, so when he returns, we might be found faithful in him. He is a God who calls us because of the great love which we, with which he has for us. And he is a God who finishes what he starts. As Paul writes in Philippians, and I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so who are you this morning? The title of the sermon is, Who Do You Think You Are? Who do you think you are when you think about yourself? What do you think is most important about you? Because oftentimes we think that what is most important about us is what makes us attain whatever we want. What's most important about us is our education and our experience because it helps us to attain the level of the career that we are looking for. What's most important about us is that we have a family with kids who are well-behaved, who are successful, who are good at sports, who get good grades, who get into good colleges. What is most important about us can become the things that we are striving for. They're what we identify we need to get what we want. How do you want to be viewed? What's most important about you? What do you strive after? Jude tells us who we are. And this message, this statement, far from being bad or like heavy-handed or 
man, I, gotta, I should feel so guilty about this. This ought to be the most freeing thing in the world for us. Because Jude comes to you sitting here on August 11th, 2019 at Wellspring Church and says, you are what's most important about you is you are called, you are beloved, and you are kept. You are called, you are loved, and you are kept by a God that you cannot change what he wants to do. He is all-powerful. What's most important about you has been written, has been finished, and cannot be changed, no matter how much you mess it up, no matter how much you sin, no matter how much things get squirrely and situations get out of control and you can't handle it anymore. Nothing that could ever happen can ever change what's most important about you. And if you're anything like me, you... Maybe you think that and you know that's true in your head, but you do not feel that way in your heart. What feels most important about you is the type of, like, the, the group that I'm part of at school. What do the people that I most admire think about me? What kind of car do I drive? Because that says something about who I am as a person. It says something about where I came from as a self-made person who worked hard for everything and I arrived. Or that I own this house, or that I own a house, or that I live in this place, or that my wife would not leave me because that would say, I'll do whatever you want. Or that my, that my kids would be well-behaved, or that I would be able to retire in a certain fashion. What do you want and what do you strive after? Because it reveals what's most important to you. It reveals who you think that you are. But brothers and sisters, would you join me in believing and listening to Jude that you are called, that you are loved, and that you are kept. And that even when it doesn't feel like it, that's the most important thing about you. As you go to the parent-teacher conference and have a difficult conversation with your kid's teacher about how they cheated and got are getting suspended. Or when you go to work and you are fired. Or when you engage in any of the types of toils and trials and snares that we walk through each and every day. You are called, you are loved, and you are kept by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, it is with great thankfulness that we meditate on these truths this morning. Truths that can become so simple to us that we read over them and forget about them. And yet truths which are so fundamentally necessary to us living lives, free lives, where we are no longer working to attain a goal that we might not be able to get. We are no longer striving to achieve status. We are no longer striving to be seen as good in the eyes of others, but instead we can rest in that all that is most important about us has been written and decided. And therefore we can freely serve and think about others and turn outside of ourselves and be truly humble. And so God, we pray that you would Help us to marvel at your magnificent love this morning. 
that you would sink these truths down deep into our heart of who we are. A realization that takes our entire lives to fully comprehend. And Lord, in that vein, with that posture, make us into people who serve and reach out and love and care for others as though we care about others more than we care about ourselves because we're good. Everything has been settled. And so would you help us to become those people this morning more and more? Would you bless us as we partake of communion, as we see Christ Jesus and your commitment to us in the bread and the wine? And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.